0: Today we're looking at a very different situation, it's more demand pull. It's just that consumers are in such good shape, they're just buying more stuff than businesses can handle. So that's the main issue.
1: This month on Ebb and Flow, we are looking ahead, specifically to the year ahead for equity markets. For this outlook, we turn to the head of equities in the Americas for UBS Global Wealth Management, one David Lefkowitz. David's 25-year career as an equity strategist has taken him from the Wharton School of Business to Credit Suisse to Goldman Sachs to, I'm thankful to say, the UBS Chief Investment Office. We asked David for his views on market drivers like economic growth, the U.S. consumer, and corporate earnings, and on market risks like inflation, potential policy errors, and COVID itself. We also touch on broader thematic opportunities coming into focus around energy transformation and infrastructure spending, and get this CFA's thoughts on the approach to investing in markets at or near record highs. I'm Paul Leeming, and on behalf of UBS Long River Wealth Management, welcome to this month's edition of Ebb and Flow. David Lefkowitz, what a pleasure to be with you here today. I really appreciate you joining the podcast.
0: Oh, uh, yeah. It's so great to be with you, Paul. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Well, and full disclosure to our audience who may not know this, David and I worked together in the chief investment office for 15 years and also lived in the same area, Park Slope, Brooklyn, which we both loved. So we, we have a, a long relationship and David, it's good that we're having this conversation. Good to be with you again. So Let's dive right into this topic of equities in, in 2022. But I think, David, before we look ahead, I'd like to ask you to look backward at the year that was 2021. Can you describe equity markets over the last 12 months and the key drivers that were at work there?
0: Yeah, sure. I, I think it's a great place to start, Paul, because I think it it helps frame how we're thinking about the, the upcoming year. So if we look at over the last year, I think there were really three main factors that were really driving just about everything. It it was the pandemic, it was the government stimulus, and and it was the Fed. And taking those in order, I mean, obviously, you know, the fact that the pandemic did get better, you know, maybe not as quickly as we all would have hoped and, and, and thought. Back when the vaccines were first rolling out just less than a year ago, mm-hmm. yeah, but clearly economic activity has has picked up, and we are going back to some of the activities that were postponed during the the worst of the pandemic. So just the reopening process and getting businesses and people back to work. that was a, a huge driver. But you know, you really can't. I mean, you can't talk about the last year without the, just the incredible amount of government stimulus that was poured into the economy from Congress. We got over $5 trillion of money that was poured into the economy. A lot of that ended up in, in consumers' hands, and that really fueled a lot of that growth coming out of the lockdowns. And at the same time, you had a Fed that was, really wanted to be very accommodative and, and, and allow the economy space and time to get back on its feet. So the Fed really, interest rates are still at zero and they're still buying $150 billion of bonds every month. So very accommodative. And just to underscore this, it was such a powerful recovery that when I look at the bottom-up consensus earnings estimates for the S&P 500 for if we were right at the beginning of the year, they've increased about 23% over uh, <laughs> over the last 11 months. In other words, it's been such a powerful recovery because of all that government stimulus and the reopening that companies have just producing 23% more profits than we expected or than the market expected 11 months ago. So that that really explains a lot in terms of why the stock market has done so well this
1: year. So, David, let's look ahead now. And, you know, I think we're going to be talking about some of the same things that you just mentioned, you know, if the three drivers of 2021 were the pandemic, stimulus, and the Fed are the three factors. We talk about some of the same things. In fact, when my team and I are speaking with clients, we talk, you know, about tailwinds and headwinds. Starting with the former, you know, we often refer to the three forces that we feel will continue to support the markets from here as the Fed, which you mentioned, the consumer, which you mentioned, and corporate earnings, which you mentioned. Would you agree with that view heading into the new year? Are are these really the key factors? And how would you characterize the strength of these and maybe any other forces at work?
0: Yeah, I think our teams are thinking about it in pretty similar ways, Paul. I, I mean, yeah, look, I mean, consumer finances are in incredibly good shape. We have record net wealth for households wages are rising, jobs are plentiful, over $2 trillion of excess savings has been accumulated on consumer balance sheets, and that's being deployed into economic activity. And we're, we're certainly seeing, we've seen a huge increase in retail sales, and especially in goods consumption, purchasing stuff mm-hmm. as opposed to services. So I think that's that consumer strength is going to persist. I would say the other thing that we're seeing is the business side also in, in terms of business spending. I mean, clearly businesses are hiring, they're scrambling to keep up with this elevated level of, deba- of demand in many industries. And that means they're investing in, in plants and equipment. And I think there's a long runway of that to go. They're investing in replenishing inventory. So and, and they're making something they're making a lot of money. So they have the financial means to to make those investments. And then we have the Fed. And I think that's really, you know, that's probably the thing that's going to be changing a little bit. I, I mean, to be fair, I think all these will be changing a little bit. I mean, consumer spending is going to moderate, just as, as, as it always does, naturally coming out of a sharp recovery. And the Fed is already starting to pivot in terms of beginning to wind down its stimulus. But I think the important point here is that we're nowhere near tight monetary policy. And that that's when you have to get a lot more concerned and and careful. But clearly we're coming out of this very early phase of the business cycle and we're transitioning into call it a mid-cycle phase if you if you want to.
1: So you're you're jumping ahead of me, which is a good thing here, because it's actually it's a good segue into my next half of this question, which is really to talk about you know, if we have talked about the tailwinds and there, we now I want to talk about the headwinds. When you look at that sort of risk side of the equation, you know, again, the things that we're talking to clients about are are COVID itself, which, you know, the link between infections and and death has weakened, but it's still out there, right? And there could be a variant. So that's, you know, one risk that we have an eye on. Uh, Inflation is the other one. And then the related issue of a potential policy mistake from the Fed, maybe, you know, acting too quickly or overreacting to inflation. So, Talk a little bit more, if you would, about the sort of risk side of things and where you you see these things playing out from here.
0: Yeah, I I think once again, you you guys are doing a good job, I think, (laughs) nailing some of some of the issues. But yeah, look, I mean. Ultimately, the last two years have been about the pandemic, right? So this is a nasty virus, and I think we're you know, like I'm no epidemiologist or virologist, but you know we've, we've come a long way in terms of the the tools we have in in order to protect ourselves against against the virus, but that remains a, a source of uncertainty. I would say inflation, yeah, I, I think the biggest concern around inflation is if it really prompts the Fed, to step on the brakes more aggressively or, or take away the punch bowl faster than what the markets are thinking or, or in a way that starts to, to really slow down the economy. Don't think that that's terribly likely, but it's, it's definitely something we're watching. I would also say the other thing that I, I'm thinking about is what's on the other side of this boom, right? I mean, this has been probably the most one of the most volatile GDP periods we've experienced in decades, you know, even more volatile than post financial crisis. And I just think it's hard. It's harder for businesses to plan in that kind of environment. You know, Mm -hmm. what what will demand be next year? What will be the year after? And, you know, it wouldn't shock me if, if we have this conversation a year from now, Paul, and we're perhaps businesses are able to replenish their inventories and, Supply does catch up with demand. Will we have a little bit of a slowdown as a result? You get a little bit of moderation in demand, businesses sort of catch up, and maybe they, they, they overshoot a little bit. That, that's pretty normal in a business cycle. You, you, you accumulate a little bit too much inventory. And then that doesn't mean a recession, but it, it means a very different environment than, than what we're, we're currently experiencing. So I, I think, if I, as I look out over the next 12 months, that's something I'm watching very carefully. But I think, you know, everything else, pandemic, inflation, Fed, all, all those are, are very important.
1: So, David, I, I'm going to push you a little bit more on the inflation question because, you know, of all the risks that we've discussed, it is the one that I'd say our clients ask us the most about, and it's frankly the one you hear a lot about in the media. And I'll, I'll say it's typically sort of images, as, as I've said before, of you know, sort of the ships lined up off the off the California coast, and you know the the, the the higher gas prices, et cetera, et cetera. But inflation, for whatever reason, is is very much on people's Minds. And I know it's not your base case, but what if inflation proves more tenacious or even more permanent than some think it will? And what does that look like from the perspective of an equity investor? And, and how might one protect it against that scenario?
0: Yeah, I mean, look, it's an important question. So, and, I, and I think it's important to address it. So, you know, I, I, you didn't ask this question, but I think it's really important to recognize that. This situation is very different from the 1970s. Mm The 1970s, we experienced two oil price shocks, one in 73, one in 79, that had huge ripple effects throughout the economy and really constrained consumers. Consumers had a really hard time and businesses uh, dealing with those two issues. And it caused all this cost push inflation. That's what the economists call it. I mean, today we're looking at a very different situation. It, it's it's more demand pull. It, it's just that consumers are in such good shape; they're just buying more stuff than businesses can handle. So, I mean, that's the main issue. And you know, it's not surprising that we're seeing the ships lined up. You know, I guess in, in hindsight, it's not surprising we're seeing the ships lined up outside of Southern California because we're consuming about 25% more stuff than we were consuming right before the pandemic. And it's just our logistic networks and businesses just can't accommodate that kind of growth in such a short amount of time. So it's causing bottlenecks. But there's also been some other issues that are compounding the problem. And I think those are more temporary, right? One is just COVID itself. So there were some production shutdowns in Asia, especially in semiconductors and, and apparel because of lockdowns in Southeast Asia, those manufacturing facilities have been coming back online and are now nearly back to 100%. So you're seeing some better availability of product. And COVID itself is still also hampering... So. That's one thing in Southeast Asia, but it's also hampering production in other places. It just makes it more difficult for businesses to you know to rely on on labor force and make sure they have a full labor force, and right. that creates problems themselves. And I would say the last thing here is is on oil prices. We've had a huge inc- a very large increase in oil prices. It's very unlikely that we're going to see the same magnitude of increase next year because i mean we're we're really just getting back to prices that were largely prevailing in in the middle of the last decade. So it, it's very unlikely that we're gonna see the same magnitude of increase. So as the reopening gets better, as the pandemic recedes and we we don't see the same level of oil price increase, we should see a cooling off in inflation. And then if you look at the labor market, you know, in theory, there should still be around seven or eight million unfilled well, workers that, that are available to work relative mm-hmm. to pre-pandemic levels. So, you know, those people should be able to come back into the labor force. And if the pandemic really does improve, we should get a shift back to buying services rather than goods. And that'll take some some pressure off the supply chains also. But if we're wrong (laughs) and to answer your question, if we're wrong and inflation is more persistent, I think you have to draw. You have to make you sort of have to make a distinction here. Let's just assume. Inflation remains elevated, but not problematic, which is sort of, I think, where we are today. Problematic for the the financial markets. If that's the situation that we're in, then equities are a great inflation hedge. And and that's part of the reason why equities have stocks have done so well this year. Companies can raise prices. I I would focus especially on companies that are pricing power. Mm -hmm. You can focus on energy energy companies. Uh, Commodities should do well in that environment. Real estate tends to do well. But I think the, you have to also bear in mind there could be a point when inflation gets too hot for the Fed's comfort level, and then you know, we sort of touched on this earlier. If the Fed starts to then really step on the brakes more aggressively, that's going to be a more disruptive environment, and that's not going to be good for equities. So it really depends on the kind of level of inflation that you're expecting and how the Fed responds. But again, our our base case is that we will see a little bit of a cooling off in the inflationary pressures because of everything you know, we just talked about. It's hard to predict these things in a post-pandemic. We've never been through a pandemic like this. And so there, there are a lot of variables and we're, we're staying on top of them as carefully as we can.
1: I know you are. I know you are. No, and we and we depend on that uh, out on the field as we read your your great research. So, David, I, I you know we don't have too much time, so I'm going to ask you for sort of a brief answer to this question. I know it's a topic we could have spoken exclusively about on this call, but it's about sort of this question of the rotation between growth and value. You know, as you know, we saw the 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 Fang or you know, I guess now we have to call them the Mang stocks almost exclusively driving markets in in the first part of 2020. And then we saw that rotation to value as as the vaccines kind of became a reality toward the end of 2020 and into 2021. And then a little bit of a shift back to growth as as the Delta variant threatened that economic recovery. So looking ahead, can you talk about these two sides of the equity market a little bit? Some are arguing that value is finally going to have its, its sort of time in the sun relative to growth. Is that your view?
0: So, yeah, we... we... By the way, calling, changing FANG to MANG, it's, it's very meta of you, Paul. Thank you, um, thank you. Man. But <laughs> yeah, look, we, we prefer value over growth, but we did recently narrow that preference. So it, it's not, a, not as large of a preference as we had just a couple of months ago. And the rationale here is that value stocks tend to perform better than growth stocks when interest rates are rising, which we think they will, and when you still have rapid earnings growth, and we think we will as well. But I do think we have to acknowledge that we're getting later in the business cycle. The scope for further interest rate increases is getting a little bit smaller. And we're going to get to a point where, at some point, earnings growth is going to slow down a little bit further. So Mm -hmm. I think having that value bias makes sense. But I also think... We need to be we need to recognize where we're on the business cycle, and that is going to dictate sort of how much value exposure we want to have, and and maybe at some point, you know, we'll we'll flip that and and have some growth exposure. That's typically growth typically works better later in the economic cycle.
1: Right. Okay. Fair enough. So, David, I'd like to extend the time horizon of our chat for just a moment here. In terms of a, a longer term opportunity, you and the the chief investment office team for which you work have sort of heralded the push toward energy transition and you know what they call a net zero carbon world as as one of the great investment opportunities of the coming decade. I would say that on the other side some would say that the the kind of the rush to clean energy is contributing to higher prices in our current energy sources. So can you talk about the balance here the opportunity and maybe some of the risks?
0: Yeah, I look I I think there is some truth to the notion that this transition away from fossil fuels is causing some of the higher prices we're seeing. But I also think it's important to acknowledge that there are some other factors at play. So yeah, because of ESG, or environmental social governance issues as we call them, there has been some reduction in investment in fossil fuel production and exploration. But also, we're also seeing some of the, the legacy energy companies, the fossil fuel-oriented companies, are also acknowledging that you know, the, the electric vehicle technologies are really progressing. And on our numbers, some point in the next five to seven years, electric vehicles are going to be cheaper from, a, cheaper from a total cost of ownership perspective relative to an internal combustion engine. Hmm. The oil companies are looking at the same stuff, right? So they're also thinking, well, how much do they want to invest? in fossil fuel production right so that's that's also an issue and then i also think we just have to have to recognize that like the last 10 years have been really tough for fossil fuel com- for for oil companies right. right i mean oil prices were at 100 dollars in you know roughly in 2014 and then crashed and and really have been kind of in the doldrums until more recently and that prompted a change in behavior oil companies Especially the smaller ones decided that they needed to focus on making money rather than just producing oil. And as a result, we're seeing a lot less investment in the energy space and a much more of a focus on like making those profits. And so I, there's a there's a bunch of things going on, but I like I, I do think there's some element of this transition that is leading to some less supply growth than we would see uh, otherwise. By the way, the fact that the energy companies are getting religion about making money. That's part of the reason why we like the energy stocks. And right. we think that there is more to go. There's also opportunities on the other side. There's there's still big opportunities uh, in terms of this transition. We're going to need a lot more renewables. We're going to re- we're need to invest in our grid, electric grid. We're going to need to invest in alternative fuels. I mean, electric vehicles, obviously, at the top of the list. So we think there's opportunities really in, in both areas. But that's kind of how we got we've gotten into this situation. I will say one one last point on this, Paul. We're in a lot better position than China or Europe. I mean, we have ample supplies of fuel. That's not a problem. So we shouldn't have any shortages or anything like that as we go into the the heating season in the winter. But yeah, it's. There's a number of things conspiring to push energy prices up.
1: <laughs> Interesting. David, I'm going to ask you to very quickly touch on the subject of infrastructure, another sort of, I guess you could call it longer term investment opportunity. Although now with the Biden administration having just passed this infrastructure bill, there would seem to be some immediate opportunities. How are you looking at this from an equity perspective? Who stands to benefit and how can investors get access mm-hmm. to that?
0: Yeah, sure. I, I mean, so. I mean, the important point here is, and I think probably most listeners would appreciate this, I mean, we don't think this is a a huge deal for the economy in the near term. I mean, unlike the the COVID relief packages, the infrastructure bill, in particular law now, is not designed to get money into the economy as quickly as possible. It's designed to make investments that the economy can earn a return on over a period of time. So I think that's an important perspective. But it, it is significant in the areas that are that are affected. We're, we're effectively doubling infrastructure spending in about five years. So that's a big deal for, for a handful of, of companies. So we have a stock list that we put together that we think is leverage to, to some of these policy initiatives. It's called POTUS 46, mm-hmm. and it's spending on traditional infrastructure like roads, passenger rail is also part of that. It's spending on resiliency, it's spending on broadband, on the power grid, water infrastructure. So, I think you have to look more at a at a stock specific level. To really take advantage of this, but we still think there are there are some really interesting opportunities in those areas.
1: Potus forty six, good name for for those who didn't pick it up. Potus is uh, president of the United States, right, David? So that's a good title for that for that report. Exactly.
0: Thank you for for yes for translating. So yeah, <laughs> I, I appreciate that.
1: Not at all. So David, you, you touched on ESG a minute ago, and I would say that in almost every other client conversation that we have, the topic of ESG and or sustainable investing comes up. and I, and I wonder just at the at the highest level, how is this trend playing into what you do for a living in terms of assessing companies in equity markets?
0: Yeah, I, I would say this is I mean clearly been been a a growing trend over the last several years and and clearly growing in terms of of client interest. And the approach that we're taking is that, we're trying to get to a place where we are ESG integrated, meaning that we are explicitly factoring in all all risks and opportunities that may come from environmental, social, or or governance types of of issues. And, you know, for the most part, Paul, we're we're kind of already doing that, right? I mean, anything that's – if there's a material issue that's going to affect – a stock. We're very likely already well aware of that, right? So, But what we're, what we're going to do is make it a little bit more transparent exactly what some of those issues are that we might be tracking and how it plays into our thinking about the investment merits of, of a particular security. Now, just because a company may score, you know, quote-unquote, score well on some of these sustainability issues, that doesn't mean it's a good stock. I mean, it could be, it could be very well priced in perhaps, or maybe it's too expensive. And likewise, just because a company scores poorly also doesn't mean that it's not a good investment. It it could be that the market's already penalizing them and we think there's scope for an improvement and there's going to be some changes. So it's not as simple as just, I, I think, buying the companies that are doing the right thing today. It's looking at level down, understanding what's what's changing, what's what's not changing in terms of how companies are responding and trying to find the opportunities that are that are not appropriately priced.
1: In some ways it's you know it's interesting looking at those companies that are improving is almost more interesting than the ones that are leading because that actually ferments change, right? <laughs> if you're if there are dollars following companies that are trying to do a better job, that could actually, you know, improve things overall. But I digress. Yes,
0: uh, 100% agree, 100% agree.
1: (laughs) So, um, David, let me bring things back to today's markets um, as we head into this new year. And I'll say that one of the most common questions we get from the clients we're speaking to is about putting cash to work at or near record highs. And, you know, people say, well, I've already missed the rally. I don't want to put any dollars to work in this. How would you address that concern?
0: Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, Paul, it's a natural human emotion. I mean, I feel it myself. But we've run the numbers, and if you look since 1960, if you were to buy just just if you were to buy the market, we looking at a monthly return. So just looking at month end prices, right. if you were to buy the market at an all time high, or waited for the market to be lower than an all time high. You see no difference in returns over the next one, two, or three years. Interesting. And you know the logic here is just that, I mean, recessions are are not that common. So a third of the time, stocks right. are at all time highs, right? And, and that's because the economy is usually growing, and that means corporate profits are growing, and corporate profits are making all time highs, and and that's when stocks are making all time highs. So right. I, I think it's important to recognize that. The other thing is that. There's, you know, especially if this is longer-term capital that that clients aren't going to be needing anytime soon. Right. I mean, the, the mantra, there's a there's a a good mantra I think is good good advice to to reflect on is that it's better to have time in the market than timing the market. Right. Right. So what you really want to do as an investor is you want to compound your capital over a long period of time, and that's really the the beauty of investing in stocks is that it's the power of that compounding over long periods of time, and so, if you take that perspective, you know over the next twenty thirty years, stocks are probably going to do something similar to what they've done over the prior twenty or thirty years, you know maybe maybe not quite as good, but still much better than than bonds, and still is going to be a, a key element of helping people achieve their financial goals. So I think that's the important perspective. You know, the other way is, is also I mean, what we talk a lot about. Uh, I don't know to what extent you guys use this. And when you speak to clients, but thinking about a client's portfolio in, in different buckets, right. liquidity, longevity, and legacy, and having different time horizons for those buckets. And then that can sometimes help clients take more risk in parts of their portfolio that have a longer investment time horizon. But the data is pretty clear, it's much better to be in the market rather than trying to time the
1: market. Absolutely. And and by the way, David, those those 3 L's will uh, be very familiar to our clients. We we discuss them all the time. I think it's a, it's a great concept and a great reminder. So last question for you David Lefkowitz and and essentially what I'm going to do here is ask you for a simple talking point to prepare our listeners for that inevitable holiday dinner question, which goes something like this. What do you think about these markets next year? <laughs> What's the 10 second answer we can give before, uh, before changing the subject?
0: <laughs> <laughs> so in CIO, we published our year ahead publication and I'm not giving you a 10-second answer, but I'll, I'll sum it up in, in 10 seconds. And we called it the year of discovery, meaning I think we're going to discover what the new normal is for consumer spending. We're going to discover what the new normal is for monetary policy. We're going to discover what the new normal is for inflation. So we have a bunch of questions that I think we're going to get an answer to. But look, ultimately, if I had to distill it down to that soundbite, corporate profits will probably be up 10% next year that that's still a, a very healthy environment for for equities
1: <laughs> well a good succinct answer and and for the longer version i would point our listeners to that that publication that david just referenced the uh the year ahead a year of discovery it's a great piece also great comments today david thank you so much for your time and for all the work that you and the team at cio do on, on behalf of ubs clients looking into these markets so on, on behalf of my partners tom lips andrew worthington ashley martella Paula Rose and our whole team of 12 Uh, we really do appreciate your time today so uh, happy Thanksgiving and holidays to you
0: yeah Paul great chatting with you again and it was my pleasure thanks for having me